Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 13 through 34. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had been gathering there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them very carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their feet. And then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He in his whole household. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes we forget historically how revolutionary, profound, and unique Christianity is. I don't mean unique because of particular doctrines, although that is true. What I'm referring to is the uniqueness of Christianity as a wide international religion. 
As a matter of fact, in the uh, study of ancient history, you don't have to be an expert in ancient history to know. All you have to do is read the Bible. Religions were frequently associated with a particular tribe, particular region, sometimes a particular country, or even a particular family. But religions were not widely understood to be international. Everybody had their own gods. That mold was entirely broken with the advent of Christianity. From its beginnings, the day of Pentecost and even with the words of Jesus and beyond, the Christian faith was for the whole world. No matter your race, your ethnicity, your nationality, your gender, your social status, it was for everyone. And nothing plays that out more dramatically than the book of Acts. Today, we're in Philippi. Among other things that's interesting about Acts chapter 16 is this is the first time that the gospel has landed in Europe. Of course, they didn't call it Europe back then the way we think of it now, but it was essentially Greece, Macedonia. The gospel had landed in Europe, and it was going to spread dramatically. The early disciples, they never saw this coming. They never conceived of it. But God had his plans. Philippi was a very prosperous city, an important city. As a matter of fact, it was known as a city that was designated by Caesar for people who had retired from the military. So it was a very important city and a prosperous one as well. In this episode of the book of Acts, chapter 16, I want to emphasize three people. Three people, one gospel. The first person of interest in this story is Lydia. Lydia, we of course don't know her until this chapter. We don't know a lot about her except this. We realize she was a wealthy trade woman. She was a part, no doubt, of an important trade guild in clothing, particularly trade clothing related to clothing that was dyed purple. In that region, there was a discovery in a shellfish that helped them uncover the process whereby they could dye clothing and make it purple. Lydia was at the front edge of this and made very good money in the process. It appears that Lydia was also a widow, though we're not sure of that. It seems that she was, and she was a well-established member of that community. Furthermore, it seems apparent that Lydia was Gentile, not Jewish. What else we know about Lydia is that she was a God follower or a God fearer. That often was a description given to Gentiles who were interested in Jehovah God that was described by the Jewish settlements, and they feared God and wanted to follow God. Lydia was one of those. 
When Paul and Silas arrived in the city, they did what many Christians do in a city that's not their own or a country that's not their own. They looked for a house of worship. They looked for a house of worship, but there was not a synagogue, apparently. What they'd heard by way of the grapevine was down by the river, there were a group of people who met for prayer. So they went to that river, and it was there they discovered a group of women who were praying and worshiping God, and Lydia was among their company. Apparently, that was the only thing happening that Paul could stick himself into for a conversation. It didn't appear there was a synagogue available. We know that a synagogue was established only when there were 10 Jewish men who were willing to establish the synagogue. It appeared that had not happened. So in the absence of 10 Jewish men establishing a synagogue, devout women, both Jewish and Gentile, were worshiping God. Whenever they encountered Lydia, she listened to Paul, and her heart was, to use a phrase of John Wesley, strangely warmed. She thought, I found it. She received his teaching, she received Christ, and was baptized as well as her whole household. That usually means that the members of her immediate family were also baptized and received the faith, but it consistently in the New Testament means the whole household, including those who were servants of hers, received the faith and were baptized. Once she was baptized, she said to Paul and Silas, if you really think I'm a believer, isn't that an interesting way to state it? If you think I'm the real deal, if you think I'm authentic, do me the favor of staying with me. Paul and Silas decided they would. That in itself was a breach of protocol for a Jewish traveling rabbi to stay in the home of a Gentile woman, a Gentile woman who no doubt would prepare food that was not kosher. But Paul and Silas agreed. And they stayed with Lydia. After staying with Lydia for a while, Paul did what he always did, which was to go about teaching. But when he moved about the city, he and Silas, they had an annoying person that was always on their heels. The second person of interest, a young slave girl. The young slave girl followed around behind Paul and Silas and shrieked, These are messengers from the Most High God. Listen to them. I don't know what she sounded like. Probably not that, but you know. Here's the thing. She was saying the right thing, but it was the wrong messenger. Why was it the wrong messenger? Because routinely people in the ancient world thought that those folks who were wandering the street and deranged and talking out and speaking things that didn't make a lot of sense. They actually believed they were speaking because the gods were speaking through them. I would imagine that if you went down to Seminary Park today, you'd hear some people speaking strange things. I also would imagine that none of you would think, oh, God's speaking to me. 
but they did. There was another reason that people frequently thought a person like her was speaking for the gods. It's because of the word that Luke uses to describe her. He actually said she had a python spirit. Wouldn't be in your text, but that's what it means. A python spirit. A python spirit is a designation that has a legend behind it. According to the legend, Delphi was an oracle who spoke on behalf of the gods. Goddess herself. And there was a dragon, a python dragon, that guarded the cave of Delphi. Finally, on one occasion, Apollo, Greek myth, destroyed the dragon, and he became the guardian of Delphi, the oracle. That's why she's called the one who had a python spirit. She was speaking on behalf of the gods, one oracle after another. Well, Paul and Silas listened to her for a while, and it annoyed them so much that after a couple of days, Paul blew it. He said, this is it. Come out of her, demon. I'm tired of listening to this. And she was delivered by exorcist. And then, of course, she continued to follow Paul and Silas as a Christ follower. But immediately, when she was delivered of the evil spirit, the ones who owned her, who used her and abused her to make money, were overcome with anger. And they dragged Paul and Silas to the magistrates, and they said, look, these people are doing things that are not our custom. They are doing things that undermine our civilization here in Philippi, the Roman Empire. They must be punished. And the magistrates agreed. They beat Paul and Silas with rods and threw them into the inner cell. Beating with rods, that was a big deal. It wasn't just like a good whipping. It was bad. Cicero describes one of the beatings that he witnessed by a Roman magistrate. And he said they beat this poor man until he was lying on the ground, writhing in pain. And then the head magistrate didn't think the beaters were beating him enough. And he took a large, blunt club and began hitting him on the forehead around the eyes until his eyes were bulging out and blood was gushing everywhere. Such was the beating with rods. They dragged the poor man away, and he died of his injuries shortly thereafter. Paul and Silas were beaten, stripped of their clothes so that they would experience maximum pain and beat with rods, and then thrown into the inner cell. And the inner cell was sort of a greater form of confinement than the rest of the prison. And they were shackled, legs put in stocks. Now imagine yourself having been beaten within an inch of your life, cramped, bloody, in extreme pain, being placed in stocks and not being able to move. It was in that condition that Paul and Silas 
instead of complaining, started singing hymns of praise to God. At about midnight, at about midnight, the prison was shaken by an earthquake. We could see that as a divine act of God, which it may have been. Certainly God used it to proclaim the good news concerning Jesus Christ, but earthquakes were very common in that region. So an earthquake shook loose everything. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. Um, Most people in Indiana might have experienced a tremor or two. Having lived in California, or if you live there, you know what an earthquake is really like. They're terrifying. I remember the first one I ever experienced. I was uh, in my car because I just left the library when I was going to school, and I sat down in my little white diesel rabbit, and it started kind of doing this. And I was convinced that my friend, who was a prankster, was behind me grabbing the bumper and moving it up and down. And I turned around, there was nobody back there. (laughs) And then I realized, oh, that was an earthquake. Actually, at the beginning, ignorance was bliss. Because once I realized what was happening, it wasn't Mark, my friend, back there. I was terrified. We were shaken awake routinely, my wife and I earthquakes in California. There's nothing like it. I've been through multiple storms, including Florida, tor- uh, Florida hurricanes. But when the earth moves, everything is out of control. You don't know what to do. This earthquake was fortuitous for them, those who were in the prisons. The doors flung open. The shackles came off. They were able to exit, but they didn't. The jailer knew what what was happening, and he ran out, called for a light, and was about ready to kill himself because he thought for sure all the prisoners were gone. Why would he kill himself? Because had he been responsible for their escape, the death penalty was next. And undoubtedly, he thought, this is a better way to go. I'll use my own sword. It'll be quick and easy. Paul says, no, don't do yourself any harm. Don't do it. And the jailer falls down trembling before Paul and Silas and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Did you wonder why the jailer fell down and cried out like that? Well, I mean, I guess the spiritual way to put it, his heart was touched by God, and it was. But what led up to that might have had a lot to do with it. He witnessed the beating. He saw them. He put their feet in stocks. He went to bed with his wife and his kids all tucked in. And while he was in bed, these crazy prisoners were singing. These people I just threw in jail and got beat up. They're singing praises to God. I don't think they were singing in a foreign language. He knew their words. He knew their song. And perhaps that's why he came trembling. It may also be because he had heard Paul preach in the marketplace. But he came trembling and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? After that's all over, 
a wonderful part of the story is this. They try to skitter them out of town quietly, and Paul says, oh, no, not so fast. We're Roman citizens. You shouldn't have beat us without a trial. That's a big no-no. You send us out a different way. And they got sent out with a bit of pomp and circumstance and apology all over the place. And they were gone. Did you ever wonder why Paul didn't say something about being a Roman citizen before the beating? I don't think it's because they were in jail. He and Silas, and all of a sudden he said, Hey, Si, I forgot something. We're Roman citizens. They shouldn't have beat us up. He let himself get bludgeoned. I think for a reason. It may have been ringing in his ears the experience he'd heard about with Peter and James and John who were persecuted by the Sanhedrin and came out and were rejoicing because they were honored to be in suffering for the name of Jesus. They said, we have been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And they rejoiced. Maybe that's what was in Paul's mind. Or maybe he was thinking to himself, I, someone mentioned this to me after the first service. I am a persecutor of these people called Christians. I spent my life throwing them in jail. How can I walk away from suffering? No matter what was going through Paul's mind, he knew he could have avoided the punishment and he didn't. So why now? Why at the end of all this does he assert his rights? My suggestion is he wasn't asserting his rights. He wasn't making a personal statement. I think he was making a statement on behalf of a fledgling church that could easily have undergone serious persecution And that fledgling church at Philippi was going to be Gentile believers, likely all Roman citizens. And it could be, he thought, that they will be persecuted and tormented and allowed not to be normal. And I want to make a point. I'll take the beating. And then I'll say, you shouldn't have done that. And they will have a public precedent concerning freedom to worship. That's my theory. I don't think it was about Paul. I think it was about others. When I think of this story, there's so many uh, lessons and applications that could be made, but uh, mercifully, I've only got three. First one is this. From the story, we learned that the gospel is for everyone. It's for every level of society, rich or poor, upper class, lower class. As Paul later says in his epistle, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile. Add your designation, black and white, Whatever it is, 
whatever it is, it all fits under the canopy of the grace of God, which was the consistent message of Jesus, which is why he was considered a friend of sinners and outcasts, which is why he touched the leper and he took in people who were adulterous and he took everyone in under the canopy of his incredible grace. That's a statement that's being made, not just in this passage, but in many to come. The gospel is for everyone. But you know what also is a part of the gospel being for everyone? Everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs salvation. The high and the low and the in-between. The rich and the poor and the slave. The people who are supposedly really bad and the people who are supposedly really good, every one of them needs salvation. That's the consistent message of the gospel. Every one of us is in desperate need of the grace of God. The gospel is for everyone. Maybe that's why on one occasion Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And everyone needs it. It's the missionary zeal that has always propelled the church. Second point of application from this story. Persecution for doing good is simply a reality. It happened, and it's going to happen. It's always happened, and it always will. The disciples counted themselves worthy and honored to suffer for Jesus. So, friends, we have to remind ourselves not to be surprised when it comes and not to be bitter because of it because that's what it means to be a Christ follower. You're going to have persecution. We should wear it joyfully and as a badge of honor. The third application I want to make is this. Joy is a powerful testimony. When Paul and Silas are in shackles and been beaten, they express joy unspeakable and full of glory. In the midst of hardship, they express joy. In the midst of suffering, they express joy. In the midst of persecution, they express joy. It's if they are channeling the words of Jesus when he taught us. Rejoice when you're persecuted. Because you're being persecuted just like the prophets were before you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your joy or your reward in heaven. Joy is the most contagious testimony of our faith that exists. It is. People will look at us and say, seriously? Where does the joy come from? 
So can I turn, just for a moment, can I turn joy into a constructive criticism? There's a lot of Christians, especially I think today, who think the best testimony for Jesus Christ is condemnation. Is screaming and pointing the finger and shouting about sin. It never was and it never will be. The most contagious testimony concerning Jesus Christ is joy because we've been delivered. It's joy because no matter what happens, all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It's joy that's irrepressible and cannot go away. It's the very thing that John spoke when he said, when you get along and love one another, that will be a powerful testimony concerning Jesus Christ. Love of one another, love of neighbor, and love of the enemy, and joy in the midst of all of it. And if you don't remember this, remind yourself. Paul wrote a letter back to the Philippians after this incident and penned these famous words, which are probably almost, if not equal to, 1 Corinthians 13 in terms of their popularity. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your moderation, your gentleness, your being satisfied with less than you are due be apparent to all people. Why? Because the Lord is near. And don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, grant, give your request to God. And when you do, the peace of God, which transcends and overarches all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind. I know! I was in the prison. <laughs> Rejoice. <laughs> yes, that is our most powerful testimony to the world. Not wagging a finger or condemnation, but the joy of the Lord. You know what that means? It means that we cannot or should not live with a sense of entitlement. We should not live with a sense of entitlement towards God. God, I deserve better than this. No, you don't. Nor do I. And we shouldn't live with a sense of entitlement around those who see us suffer. When we want to express our personal rights, we are called to live joyfully for Christ. That is totally countercultural, my friends. Totally counterintuitive. But it's the gospel. Let's see what we can do this week to live it. Let's pray. Dear God, you have been so gracious to us. You have blessed us. You've kept us. You've made your face shine upon us. You've been gracious to us and lift up the light of your countenance upon us, and you've given us peace. And if that is true the way we know it is true, the proper response in the midst of all circumstances is to rejoice. The best testimony we have in our arsenal is the joy of the Lord. 
So, Lord, make us joyful Christians this week. When we walk into our workplace, when we encounter people at the grocery store, when somebody cuts us off in traffic, when somebody speaks wrongfully of us, may we be people who are so full of joy that it makes no sense at all except for the presence of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, living as joyful people, we will have an opportunity to share where the joy comes from. We thank you, Lord, for salvation. You redeemed us. You bought us with a price. You saved us. May we rejoice because of that salvation today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.